A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, Myra Glass. It's been such an extraordinary and painful few weeks since the killing of George Floyd. And we have a show today with people in scenes that we recorded this past week, trying to capture what this moment feels like and how different people are reacting and what they're doing. And I know usually right here at the top of the show, I jump right in with some story, but I think it actually captures what lots of people are feeling this week a lot better to start with this essay from one of our producers, Beamata Wunmi. Here she is. The year I came to live and work in America, 962 people were shot and killed by police across the country. Or maybe the number was 1,093. It depends on who you ask about 2016. One project that counted the dead found that black males aged 15 to 34 were nine times more likely than other Americans to be killed by law enforcement. In case you've become fuzzy on timelines, Michael Brown was shot by police in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. Walter Scott was shot in the back by police in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. In 2016, Alton Sterling was killed by police in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And a day later, in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, police shot and killed Philando Castile while he was in his car with his partner and her four-year-old daughter. Those last two incidents were recorded. Both were viewed by the public at large. At the time Sterling and Castile were killed in 2016, I'd been living in New York for four months. I'd come to America to report on the presidential election campaigns with a wry British eye. I no longer have the original text of my visa application, but I remember distinctly that it mentioned both the 19th century French social scientist Alexis de Tocqueville and the late British journalist Alistair Cook. Both Alexis and Alistair were men of letters, operating in very different eras of American upheaval. The aim of their writing was to help readers back home understand the unique American situation. They were good names to put on a visa application. It indicated I knew my literary lineage. But the reality is that beyond the common ground of our jobs, I wasn't really like Alexis or Alistair. I moved through the world differently. I was a woman. I was a Muslim. I was the child of working-class immigrants, born to parents who themselves were born in an African country still under the yoke of the English monarchy. And of course, I was black. I still am. Thanks to the spread of empire, I'm no stranger to the project of colonization. Of all the things I would be reporting on and experiencing firsthand in America, the subject of blackness was the thing with which I had the most literal, most lived experience. British police have historically not used guns like their American counterparts, but the history of disproportionate black death during and after interactions with police in the UK tells a familiar story. The lyrics are different, but the melody is old and known to me. That's the horrible thing about this moment. I've been here before. And so when George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis on Memorial Day in the last week of May, I had a feeling of resigned deja vu. Police had arrested a man, and then, less than a half hour later, that man was dead. The manner of it, a cop's knee pressing down on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, felt like a stage play we'd all seen before. The fact that it had been recorded felt proper, like a sort of sacred practice. 
The mundane location of it was familiar too. A regular street suddenly transformed into an arena for public death. The echo of some of Floyd's dying words, eerily the same as Eric Garner's in 2014. I can't breathe. Even that felt like an on-the-nose rerun of a series called How to Die in America. Almost every element of what happened next hit the exact beat it was supposed to. The video of his life being snuffed out went viral. Tabloid newspapers brought up his criminal past. Protests began the day after he was killed. Against police brutality, yes, but also against the organizing principle of colonialism in general, and explicitly against the ideology of white supremacy itself. And it wasn't just black people yelling. Things shifted. Something was different. By the end of the week, there were protests across the country, all 50 states. And a week after that, there'd been protests in other countries too. Last weekend, I watched protesters in the west of England topple the statue of Edward Colston, a Bristol man who made his fortune by trading in thousands of enslaved Africans. After kneeling on the supine statue's neck, protesters rolled it down the street before tipping it into the Bristol Harbour. My London friends sent me videos and photos of protests they had attended while doing their best to maintain social distancing. As someone on Twitter put it, I can't believe Corona blew a 28-3 lead to racism. The day after George Floyd was killed, I quit Twitter because of my propensity for doom scrolling. I knew my right thumb would be in constant, endless motion, eating up breaking news that would later crystallise into insomnia and migraines. But even on Instagram, it was a wall of George Floyd content. Suddenly, I was overwhelmed with graphics and photos and links to bail funds and that uniquely American habit, crowdfunding. On pastel-coloured digital easels, people wrote anti-racist quotes from Angela Davis and Ijoma Oluo. Artists created tributes to people like 26-year-old Breonna Taylor, who was killed in her own home in Louisville, Kentucky, back in March. And Tony McDade, a trans man killed in Tallahassee. There were guides on everything, from how to dress and prepare for a protest in the age of coronavirus, to the specifics of raising truly anti-racist children. My favourite, or least favourite, genre of these is the one that teaches non-black people how to be people in this moment. Posts with headings like, here's what to say to your black friends, or check in on your black friends, were seemingly everywhere. After that first weekend of protests, I got a text in one of my group chats from a black friend. Have either of you gotten texts from white people this weekend? She wrote. Yes, we both replied. We all shared a dark laugh. Black people have been dying in America and elsewhere for so long. What's so different about now? That first weekend, I kept asking myself this. What's making white people care now? I keep looking to see what I've missed. What was the thing that's making brands draw these lines now? What makes babynames.com dedicate its landing page to listing black victims of police violence, along with the note, each one of these names was somebody's baby. Babynames.com stands in solidarity with the black community. What is compelling people, a lot of them white, to stand up for the first time and proclaim that it's time to do something? How is it that I have read more proposals for defunding and abolishing the police in the last two weeks than over the course of the last two years? 
what's making people in small towns across America, from Lewistown, Montana, to Bad Axe, Michigan, get up and protest now? If Sandra Bland didn't do it, if Eric Garner didn't do it, if Atatiana Jefferson didn't do it, if Ayanna Stanley Jones didn't do it, how is the death of George Floyd the thing that moves the needle? I can't think of an easy answer. It's not because he was seven years old, like Ayanna Stanley Jones was. It's not because he was a 12-year-old boy, like Tamir Rice was. It's not because he was an award-winning EMT who tweeted that 2020 would be her year, like Breonna Taylor was. So the next likely answer is that it's as simple as the effect of accumulation. Finally, there are enough dirty clothes in the hamper to justify putting on a load of laundry. Maybe the increased visibility of the stark differences between the haves and have-nots over the last few years has produced a populace ready to be pushed into the hitherto radical lane of thought that suggests actually black lives do matter. Maybe the activists finally broke through. Who can say? A part of me wants white people at large to feel deeply ashamed. This is entry level. Stop killing us. This is basic. If the killing of George Floyd could unleash this tidal wave of demonstration, what was stopping you before? He's as meaningful as any other victim of police violence, named or unnamed here today. You could have harnessed all this energy, 15, 20, 200, 500, a thousand deaths ago. But that didn't happen. And so when I ask the question, why now? The truth is that I don't really care. All these white people newly attuned to this frequency the rest of us know so well. I told a friend that I wanted everyone to do their belated learning far away from me. I don't want to see how anyone is carrying the one. I don't want to teach anyone. I have no office hours. I don't want to know what triggered your come to Jesus moment. I have no interest in seeing how the sausage gets made. I just want to rock up to the table and enjoy my breakfast. I know what's different for me. I'm angrier now. I think of what parents say about how their hearts grow bigger after a second child instead of having to share the love they already feel. That's me. But instead of love, it's rage. I find that this time, I am furious. That's what's different. Bim Adewunmi is one of the producers of our show. Act two, before sunrise. So one night recently, one of our producers, Diane Wu, stopped by Mr. Mango, which is a corner grocery in New York City. It's two or three blocks from the Barclays Center, where lots of the big New York City protests have happened. And it's just down the street from Brooklyn Hospital, which has been hard hit treating coronavirus patients these last few months. Newark, of course, the epicenter of coronavirus cases in this country. Mr. Mango is a 24-hour grocery store that has stayed open through the city's shutdown, through the curfew. It is an intersection that all kinds of people pass through. And uh, that particular night that Diane was there, protesters were singing happy birthday to Breonna Taylor at a little plaza across the street. A woman in scrubs at the store was FaceTiming somebody about onions, 
cop cars pulled up. And standing there watching all of this, during this intense moment we're all living through, where race and justice and survival are at the forefront of everything, Diane wondered what were all these different people thinking in this quiet little grocery store. So she went back the next night. It was this past Saturday night, June 6th, with a microphone and with our coworker Lena Masitsis. They stayed all night until 5 in the morning, talked to dozens of people, and, uh, and they put this uh, next story together. Usually, I just want to say we do not point out the race of the people that we talk to on the radio unless there's some particular reason. But race is the context for so many interactions, including the ones at this store, that in this story we're going to identify the race or nationality of everybody who you're going to hear. Okay, here's Diane. We got to Mr. Mango just before the city's 8 p.m. curfew. Inside, it was crowded and serious. People were shopping silently, trying to keep a distance, trying to move fast and get out of the store and get home by 8. A police helicopter buzzed overhead. Mr. Mango is a small grocery store with inexpensive produce out front and a mix of regular and bougie groceries inside. They have 35 kinds of honey, but also dollar pineapples. The cashiers were hurriedly checking everyone out from an island in the middle of the store. Once curfew kicked in, things relaxed, like all the anxious rule followers had cleared out. The regulars started filtering in. Neighborhood people, essential workers. A white guy in pajama pants came in to buy a corkscrew. Chan, who's Thai, and manages the restaurant three doors down. He came in after his shift ended at 10 to pick up some pita chips for his husband. The curfew had actually been good for business. Like, when it's next to 8, people were so afraid that they will, like, have to stop at home or something. So a lot of delivery is going to happen around that time, yeah. Like, how many tonight? Tonight we hit, like, $3,000. $3,000, which was 50% more than usual, he told me. Devon, a black man who lives around the corner, stopped by in a camo face mask to pick up some ice and some cups. He was hanging out with a friend from Jersey that night. Yeah, with all this going on, I need something to unwind a little bit. But this has been rough, this world, right now. Everything's going on. No basketball season, no sports. My daughter couldn't graduate high school, couldn't have a graduation. Only great thing about this thing, my grandson is born now. Congratulations. One so I'm sorry for people who lost death, but my daughter's happy. Yeah. My, my grandson is home. They safe. The ice he was carrying to the register, actually, was for a toast for baby Thurmond. One group of regulars was hard to get to talk because they were either rushing to work or exhausted. The hospital workers. Everyone else had moved on to the new crisis, but they were still very much inside the previous one. Do you have a minute to talk? A black woman on the hospital cleaning crew, Bernice, talked to me for one minute and 24 seconds while she shopped and wasted none of it. This line, I'm tired. Yeah. Because of this coronavirus, I've been working for the last 96 days. And then you got these people out here protesting, which I'm all for that, but they're going about the wrong way with the burning buildings and stores, and people got to survive, you know. This is your neighborhood. You shouldn't be doing stuff like that. You know, you got to do it the right way. But that's just my opinion. And I'm delirious and I'm tired right now, so I'm about to go. I feel tired for you. 96 days. I'm actually, 
Walking slowly by slowly, taking step by step, I am like burnt out, drained. You don't know what to say anymore. Just go to work and just pray that the same way you leave there, you come back home that way. That's all I can say, mama. You be careful, have a good night. I got to go. At the cashier's island, there's Ronnie, who's new at Mr. Mango. He just started working here this week. He's Latino, from Guatemala. And Dorji, the longtime overnight cashier. Gracious and calm, Dorji's from Bhutan. He's the quiet center of gravity of the whole store and does not want to be on the radio. Every time I swing the microphone in his direction, he leans back and puts his hands up to protect himself from it. (laughs) Once the mic is safely out of sight, though, he's happy to talk. After I interview any of his regulars, Dorji helpfully fills in the details. That guy is a really hard worker. They come almost every day after a long day. They used to buy Corona, but after coronavirus, they started getting a different beer. One of the regulars, Schechter, who's Asian, tells me that Mr. Mango is his favorite store in his whole life. And the reason is Dorji and the other night cashier, Karma, who's off tonight. Last year, I had a bad year. Everything started to fall apart. In my worst moments, I would come here at midnight or one in the morning and just be with them. And I found out that I wasn't the only one. Ever since the pandemic, Dorji's been working more, 72 hours a week. He's tired. Tomorrow is his day off. As it gets later, around midnight, the mood at Mr. Mango shifts. Some of the energy outside filters in. Lena tells what happens next. Protesters keep turning up. A sunburned couple, white, holding hands, on their way home from a rally. They bought ice cream, beer, and lemons. Patrick, an older black man, with long hair and a beard to match. He'd been out protesting, too, wanted to grab a snack before turning in. He bought one pineapple. And then these protesters. I'll call them Josh and Katie. They seemed about 30, both of them white. She had long red hair and he had knuckle tattoos, but he refused to show them to us. For his own protection, he said, and because he didn't want to put himself as an individual ahead of the movement. Do you like the chickens? Not really. Why not? So tell me, what's up? I just don't like them that much. I don't know why. I never really liked them that much. Yeah, you just saw I like them. You know, I eat anything. Josh and Katie told Diane they'd spent the day marching all over Brooklyn. They just went through Flatbush, Crown Heights, Bed-Stuy, and then back up here to Barclays. Sound a little tired. I was uh, locked up for a long time uh, after one of the recent violent assaults on a protest in one of the outer boroughs. Like you got arrested this week? Yeah. Josh kept talking about what he called movement moments. Katie focused on shopping for fruit. They have the best fruit. They have plantains, they have lychees, they have soursop, they have star fruit, they have mame, they have things you don't see in America. I mean, you know, these guys are the real deal. Oh, 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 oh. What's going on? What just happened? What happened was, a couple NYPD walked into Mr. Mango, and Josh and Katie immediately reacted. Josh very dramatically stopped talking, wrapped a scarf around his face, so that all that were showing were his eyes. He looked like a mummy, who's also an anarchist. He crept away, picked up some tofu, and held it, like a prop, then glanced back at the police. Meanwhile, I went and talked to the officers. One white, 
the other Dominican. What are you guys here for? Just buying snacks. Some water. I got water and uh, pretzels. I got some water. While I was talking to the police, Josh and Katie moved to the back of the store where they accidentally knocked over some toilet paper. The whole thing was pretty conspicuous, but they didn't want to be near the NYPD, which the cops definitely noticed, but they didn't care. Doesn't bother me at all. Like, is, wait, because you're used to it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But sometimes we get appreciation too. You know? It goes both ways. We get both, both you know? ways, yeah. You get appreciation today? Um, no. That no was coming from Josh. He's listening to our conversation. Officer Rodriguez heard him, rolled his eyes. Yeah, but that's the same guy that when he's getting robbed or something, he's going to call 911 and he's going to expect us to show up. You hear what I'm saying? So. The officers pay for their water and pretzels, tell me they have to get back to work. They're on patrol duty. I walk out with them, and when I get back, Josh has uncovered his face. He's talking about Standing Rock. When you've seen them shoot down Americans and natives at Standing Rock with four different jurisdictions at once, in every brutal way they can. Wait, can I tell you what he said about you? What did he say? I asked if it upset him that you wouldn't step up to pay until he was gone, and he said no, but when he gets robbed, he's going to call 911 and expect us to help him. I don't call the cops. You haven't? You don't call 911? I'd never call it for any reason whatsoever. Everything can be handled within a community. Every possible situation you could come up with. Does it make sense to you why he would have said that, though? Uh, yeah, because he's been acculturated to a system which believes that we will always need policing no matter what, even though it's an advent of the 18th century. Uh, Wait, are you, are you saying a rehearsed speech? My entire life is dedicated to the destruction of the police in the American empire. I'm speaking off the cuff because this is what I think about all day long. Another protester came in soon after Josh and Katie. She was also skeptical of the police. Her tactic, though, was pretty different. This was a white protester I noticed in front of the sliced cheeses, animatedly chatting up a black police officer. She was asking him questions, which he seemed to be answering. This was a kind of conversation I hadn't heard yet, so I walked over. Lieutenant Maurice Walston was wearing an upper-rank officer's white shirt. Brianna was holding a green juice. She was on her way home from drinks with a friend after protesting all day. And I appreciate you just talking to me, Officer Walston. I really appreciate this conversation just in general. And I appreciate it as well. And, and again, it, it should be everyone's right that, you know, no one should be able to, no one should fear police interactions like this. It, it, we should, we should. All. I don't. No, I know that. But, but I'm sure. But that's my privilege, right? I don't have to. Lieutenant Walston doesn't want to talk about her privilege. Well, I can tell you this. When I deal with even people of my race, um, I give them the same respect that I give to you. And that's just across the board. I'm sure you do. That's not the question, right? You're an officer (laughs) of color. That is my question, question, yes. But but I've been, this is not my first conversation with a police officer tonight. No, I understand. I I get it. I understand. I I want to communicate and understand. It's a really awkward conversation to watch. She keeps making big statements about policing, ending with, right? It's not, it's not an isolated event here or there, right? It's a systemic problem. I have this general sense that people who try to, who go to be police officers generally have like a 
power issue, right? Either it's a power issue or they want to help people. And, like, in my mind, it's, you know, one or the other. Um, I think generally most people become police officers to help people. Um, I Though, think of course, it's hard to get Lieutenant Walston to agree with what seems to be her central premise, that there's something fundamentally wrong with his job. But ultimately, when police are called in on peacekeeping missions, violence ensues. Right? Uh, see, there are times, there are times when, when we, when we get called and violence has already occurred or violence is there. And that's the majority of the times why we're getting called to these emergency situations. Right. Lieutenant Walston told so, me later that people who don't have so, as many interactions with the police there, often fill the vacuum with the worst images they see in the news. Not anything based on their own experiences. His strategy during this conversation, he told me, was first to mostly just listen. But when she told him she knew what it was like to be in the minority because she'd lived as a white person in Oakland, he realized the depth of her misconceptions. But since she seemed so adamant, he wasn't out to change them. When we talked to Brianna later, she said she wasn't expecting to change anything about his beliefs. It just felt important to say what she thought. Toward the end of their 20-minute conversation, there's a moment where she asks for his advice. She asks, do you have kids? Yeah, I do. <laughs> That's just, I have, I have, I have twins. I have a four-year-old son. He's biracial. And I'm trying to figure out how to tell him he presents as white. He looks white, but he's not white, right? So how do you talk to a biracial kid about racism? Right. Um, so that's why I asked. Right, no, I how understand. Do you, how do you talk to your black kids about police brutality? They're also biracial. So I, uh, I'm honest with them. That's the only way you can be. Be honest, you know, and... Uh, what does that honesty look like? Well, honesty looks like me, in part. Tell them that there are officers like me out there, you know? Do you also um, have to tell them there's officers not like you? Yes, I would be truthful. You have to have that conversation with your kids. You have to have that conversation with your kids, she tells him. It's funny to imagine how different those two conversations would be. After she left, I asked Lieutenant Walston what he made of all of that. Have you been having more conversations like the one you just had? Sorry, to be more specific, have more white people wanted to talk to you about that kind of thing than usual? Uh, yeah, yeah, and you know, and I get that. And, and, you know, let me just say this: I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you know you have all nationalities that are coming together to, uh, you know, for a common goal, and I'm happy about that. The only thing is that when you do get a, a white person, which is fine, but. Don't, the one thing I just don't allow is for you to claim that you know my plight more than I do. Is it accurate to say that that was like a white lady explaining to you why Black Lives Matter? Yeah, yeah, basically. In a sense, yeah. It's someone not of my, you know, race telling me why my life matters. and. I know why my life matters. I know what I went through. 
he gets in an unmarked police car with his patrol partner and drives down Lafayette Avenue. By one or two in the morning, the protesters recede off the stage and the night shift workers make their entrance. The mood changes again. It becomes quiet, contemplative. The night shift workers, they aren't on their way home from protesting racism. But many of them know a lot about it. Like Alexander. I do security for 300 Ashland. Okay, is that that big fancy building on the corner? Yeah, exactly. What's that job like right now? Has it been hectic at all because of the protests? Not really, but people, it's just that you get surprised to see who's, who has their position politically on the protests from working in a residential building. So people come out to jump with the protesters, some people come out and, you know, go against the protesters, so you get to see, you know. Do people kind of match up with what you would guess? Yeah, it's just surprising how being cynical is usually being right. <laughs> Though, there is one wild card category. The old, the old, the older residents are always surprising on their views. Because uh-huh. at a certain age, you start to be like, okay, you know. I don't expect much from you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but w- there's some like older woke people in your building. When, yeah, but when they're awake and they know what's going on, it's surprising, you know. Yeah. It feels nice. Wait, what kinds of things are people saying who are against the protest? It's more of like this the the subtle hints will be oh when is going to be enough of these people protesting? That or or it's too late for that, or now is this usually the time, or why didn't y'all do that last time? You know, it, it's, it's, it's subtle when people try to diminish or water down the situation. But, you know, it is what it is. Ain't nothing we, us as a people aren't used to, so. Eh. What do you mean? Like, you know, being a black individual, you're used to people always dismissing your cause. Like, if you talk about slavery, they bring up the Holocaust. If you talk about anything that has to do with being black, other people bring in their struggles, too, so. It is what it is. So even with the protest now, nothing wrong with, you know, I see uh, Caucasian friends helping us out and being a part of the situation. But, you know, it's getting watered down because what everybody sees is the white faces. They're not seeing any black faces a part of it. So who, who lives matter? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> the vast majority of the protesters we talked to at Mr. Mango that night were, in fact, white. How has it been working after curfew? Does it feel like, have you been nervous about it at all? Not been nervous. I'm not a nervous individual. Like, yeah, yeah, because this is all, like, this all riots and, you know, never know who's going to be attacked or not or feeling unsafe. It's part of being a black male, period. So, you know, it's a little bit of insight for everybody else to feel like how we feel, you know? Alexander works the night shift from 6 p.m. to 2 a.m., which has made getting home hard during this week of curfew. The subway's closed. Cabs aren't an option. Alexander is 26 and has lived in New York City his whole life. He told me that the first time a yellow cab stopped for him as a black man was this last year. Tonight, he heard Ubers running, and that's how he'll get home. How did you get home the other night? Through the grace of God. (laughs) That's the only way possible to describe it. Right now, though, he has to get back to work. He walks over to the cash register. Uh, I, you know, I'm the type of person that when I buy stuff, I, sometimes I get all the things of the same color. I don't know why. <laughs> I think other people do it too, but somehow I got ramen and look like blueberries. 
Okay, yeah, you good. got all purple today. You got yeah. purple ramen yeah, and a uh, acai drink. Somehow I got some just grape juice too. I don't know why. It's weird, huh? <laughs> Have a good night. You too. At around 1.30 a.m., a guy in an MTA uniform walked in. He was holding a big leather binder. He heads straight for the cash register, eager to show Dorji whatever's inside of it. It's a trading card album, full of old basketball cards, the kind with holograms. Yeah, this is from the 1990s when uh, Michael Jordan dominated. There's Michael Jordan. This is the famous Nuts and Bolts collection. I'm going to get 500 for that. There's 10 cards. Everybody's in the Hall of Fame, see? Wow. Look at that. His name is Fred Nixon. He works for the city subway morning. system, specifically the G-Stop beneath the store. I work right downstairs in uh, the booth. Yeah, I got to, I got to, I got to. Doshi, I need a napkin since I'm on TV, man. Fred comes into Mr. Mango a lot, like when it gets hot downstairs. The napkin he asked for was to wipe the sweat from his forehead. He and Dorji talk all the time. They know each other well. Is it crazy people outside? No, no, it's, it's died down now. Fred starts talking about the looting. You know, the reason why people did that is because Donald Trump is an idiot. And he said when the looting starts, the shooting starts. People in America, they take that to heart. And they say, oh, yeah, shoot me. And that's what that was all about. But I'm glad they stopped. I really believe that's why the people looted, because they wanted to challenge him, you know? Like they felt dared to. Yeah. Fred Nixon is 61 years old. He's black, grew up here, in the same neighborhood. And he's proud of these past couple of weeks. He feels the protests are a continuation of work he had a hand in starting. I started this movement 40 years ago, right across the street at BAM with Sonny Carson. Wait, Sonny Carson actually was trying to do something like this 40 years ago. Well, look that up. <laughs> I did. Sonny Carson was a civil rights activist and a political organizer from Brooklyn. In the 1970s, he led demonstrations for racial justice, just a block away from Mr. Mango. How does it make you feel seeing it happen, you know, again now in 2020? I wanted to see it before I'm dead, so I'm glad about it because black people can't do it by themselves. And if, until everybody jumped in the course, that's why nobody was listening. What do you think is different now, though, that, um, I mean, basically, like, more white people than ever are paying attention. What do you, because, what do you think um, is different? I think that, uh, you ever heard the saying, the straw that broke the camel's back? Of course. George Floyd was the straw that broke the camel's back. Part of Fred's job is interfacing with cops patrolling the subway station, often. Sometimes when I see cops, I get really upset about it. When I was 15 years old, I got beat up by the cops right in front of the 88th precinct. Where is 88th precinct? Uh, where is um, it? Clawson and DeKalb. And um, recently, they tried to burn it up last week. I didn't even feel bad for them because of that experience I had when I was 15 years old. I've been a scout. It was the early 70s when it happened. Fred said it was a misunderstanding about unpaid bus fare, which at the time was 35 cents. He says not a lot's changed since then. I've been stopped by the cops with my uniform on. The cops came to my job and told me I stole a Red Bull out the store with my uniform on. And I was going crazy. I was like, man, I told them if they didn't get out of my booth, I was going to press the emergency button. They all left because they know they have to fill out paperwork for that. So you don't 
Fred didn't buy anything at Mr. Mango. No, not, at all. not during that break, anyway. He just came in to say hi to Georgie. Yeah, this is the place, man. Mr. Mango's the best. <laughs> Especially Mr. Doshi here. On his way out, Fred promised Georgie that he'd bring back the basketball card soon so he could get a proper look. Georgie said he'd want a full hour to do it so that he can see everything. After 3 a.m., even the night shift workers weren't coming in anymore. It was just Georgie and Ronnie in there. They were in constant motion. Ronnie restocking the eggs and coconut water. Georgie cleaning the coffee machine and rearranging the pastries. Around 3.30, a really out-of-it man walked in. He was black. It seemed like he might have been homeless. He got a muffin. After that, no one came in. And the store felt like a safe, clean cocoon, full of soap and honey and different kinds of sprinkles. It felt like a store from six months ago, or a hundred months ago, where nothing was out of place, except maybe the case of hand sanitizer above the cheesecake fridge. The last person we talked to as we left at 5 a.m. was a Latino guy picking over the oranges in a crisp Hawaiian shirt. He was complaining about a notice from the government that his student loans from the 80s were overdue. He was so annoyed. No pandemic or protest on his mind at all. In that moment. Diane Wu with Lena Masitsis. Coming up, a neighborhood protest that wasn't supposed to happen. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Today's show, here again, stories in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd that we recorded this past week. So there are these Twitter threads that have sprung up these last couple weeks where people are collecting as many videos of police violence against protesters as they can find. I spent a lot of time scrolling through the ones assembled by a North Carolina lawyer named T. Greg Doucette. He's also got them in a handy Google Doc forum online. He has over 600 videos so far. And he says people have sent him 1,600 direct messages with links that he hasn't even gotten to yet. The stuff that police are doing in these videos, I mean, the tactics that they're using against peaceful protests, it is not news. There's nothing new about it at this point. I think everybody knows or should know that this stuff is happening. But watching them back to back, all collected in one place, like the sheer concentrated volume of it is unnerving. The simplest ones uh, start with utterly peaceful demonstrators. In San Luis Obispo, Bentonville, Arkansas, Columbus, Ohio, Huntsville, Georgia, Walnut Creek, California, too many places to name. And then police fire tear gas and sometimes flashbangs or rubber bullets with no apparent provocation. Oh shit! Oh fuck! Oh shit! Run, 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 run! Lots of videos, of course, get way more violent. In Austin, police shot a beanbag round at a 16-year-old boy, Brad Levi Ayala, who seems like he's just a bystander, watching the protest from an embankment near the street. In Minneapolis, on a super peaceful, suburban-looking, tree-lined street with pretty homes, police and National Guard march down the street. Get inside! Get your house now! Let's go! And fire some kind of round at a woman for the offense of videoing them from her own porch. Go inside now! Get in the house! In Los Angeles, a black family tries to protect a store from looters. They flag down police to help, and then the police start to handcuff and detain them 
A reporter who's there on live TV tries to set the police straight. Okay, sir. Sir? Whoa. They're, they're protecting the stores or looters are over there. Stand down for a sec, please. In Indianapolis, an officer looks like he grabs a young woman's breast while trying to detain her. She squirms free, and two officers beat her to the ground with nightsticks. This is going to be the last one I'm going to play you. It sums up, I think, all of these as well as any one video could. It's from Charleston, South Carolina. Again, a perfectly peaceful group of protesters, all of them kneeling, I don't know, maybe 20 feet from a line of police as one guy addresses officers. I am not your enemy. You are not my enemy. I love all of y'all. You are my family, and I love you, and I respect you. And I want to understand y'all. I want to understand all of you. He repeats this over and over. I want to understand you. Please respond by marching over to the guy. They drag him to his feet and arrest him. Come on, what are you doing? What are you doing? Fuck you! Fuck you! What the fuck do you Are you fucking kidding me? Which brings us to Act 3, Grand Army. So given the way protests have been going, some people do not want them in their own neighborhoods. There's a neighborhood in Brooklyn, Red Hook, where there was a debate about this. A couple weeks ago, one woman, who is white, woke up, read the news of the day, and then posted online that she wanted to have a protest. She got several responses from local community leaders asking her not to do it. The wife of a local pastor wrote, please reconsider this. There's more damage than good that'll come from this. The hurt and anger that the black community has right now will not allow for this to end up peacefully. In the end, you will be able to go back home to a quiet, peaceful block But the residents of NYCHA, that's the public housing, won't. They will end up with more police presence, possible curfew, some may get hurt, and so much more. The one who wrote the initial post backed down. But last weekend, there was a protest in Red Hook. One of our producers, Dana Chivas, who lives there, explains how that happened and how it went. The protest that did happen was organized by a 22-year-old named Nod Dorch, who had never done anything like this before. I met up with him just before the protest started. Have you been in touch with the police? Like, have they contacted you as the organizer at all? Oh, yeah, they have. What have, they, what, what, what have those conversations been like? Um, they're just mainly interested in the route and what's going to happen and, and, thing, and, and things like that. Um, Has it been cordial, like, your conversations with them? Oh, no, 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 no. It's been, it has been cordial. It has been cordial, but um, they'd say things like, so we need the route. And I'd say, I don't think you need the route. And they'd say, well, you don't have a permit. You know what I mean? Like, hey, if you don't give me the route, we're going to shut it down because you don't have a permit. Things like that. And so you didn't give them the route? I didn't give them the route at all. I didn't give anyone the route. I gave people a general route. The police told me they didn't try to shut down the event. Three weeks ago, Nah was doing what a lot of us were. Literally, I was doing nothing. Literally nothing. I was just home in my house, doing nothing. Just going outside sometimes, getting some air, but I was, like, doing nothing. And then George Floyd was killed. The country erupted in protest. Nal looked out at his neighborhood and saw... Nobody's coming to fucking Red Hook. And nobody's, like, out here protesting. And I was just like, fuck it, I'm going to do a protest. He'd been to a few protests over the years. When he was 17, he joined a Black Lives Matter group for a few days. But he felt like... He was too young to make a difference, to be heard. Everyone else in the group was ancient, in their 30s. He texted his friend Crystal. She agreed to be his secretary, made a flyer with the date and time for the protest. 
Now pulled in his friends, Mo Pringle, like the chip, she told me. Nassim Stevenson, who plans to go to law school, and a few others. They came up with a name, the New Black Leaders. Black spelled B-L-Q-K, because the other version was taken. Objectively, 2020 has been an unremitting shitstorm of a year. But things have actually been going okay for Na. He recently came out to his friends and family. Most of them were supportive. His grandmother asked a few awkward questions and then tried to get some hot gossip about who else was gay. He's been feeling more empowered lately, more like himself. But when he and some friends decided to have a protest, they got the same response from some community leaders as the other woman, the one who proposed a protest on Facebook. They worried it could be dangerous. People from outside the neighborhood could come in and start trouble. It could give the cops a reason to harass them or to get violent. One of them felt like people had been protesting for years and nothing had changed. The new black leaders had a Zoom call where they tried to convince them everything would be fine. I'm going to express all throughout the protest, we do not want agitators here. If you see anyone who look, who, who, who's trying to agitate, stop them. If you feel like you are going to get agitated or if you are here to be violent, leave. We're gonna, I'm going to constantly express that. After this call with the community leaders, though, one of them, a guy who serves as a community liaison to the 76th precinct, sent an email to the police telling them what route he thought the march would take and giving them the names and photos of the organizers. It made Na feel even more targeted than he already did. It, it, it hurt me. It almost discouraged me because it made me feel like, damn, like nobody believes in us. You know what I mean? Um, even though we constantly express how it was going to go and we express that, like, you can help us, you know, make sure that these things remain, like, the protest is, is safe. But um, it almost discouraged me. It kind of made me feel like I didn't know what I was doing. Nas' friends, the other organizers, convinced him to keep going. And that email, it was actually the reason one of the reticent community leaders, Tiffany Davis, decided to go to the protest. It's a crazy day. It's a... And- Empowering, but scary day. Tiffany runs an organization called Red Hook Art Project. On Sunday, the day of the protest, she showed up early. A handful of people were hanging around outside the community center, getting ready, making signs and T-shirts. What are you scared about? You know, I just, I'm just seeing a lot of the police ride around in ways that they, I mean, they always patrol the neighborhood, but they are patrolling it way too much now because they know that there's black leaders behind this protest and they're looking for them to do something that they not they, that's not what their intentions are. You're seeing them drive around more today? I did see them drive around today and I'm a little frustrated by what I'm seeing. As an adult, I'm frustrated because these are young children. They all my son and my daughter age, so I'm, I'm very, I'm disappointed at the community police. I'm very disappointed. What are you worried might, might happen? I don't know, just that any kid can make a wrong move like that gentleman right now is bouncing a basketball. What if the basketball roll over and hit a police officer and then they try to blame that on something negative and a reason to start shooting? Look at them. Do they look like they want to start trouble? No, they look like they want to make t-shirts and signs. They just want opportunities to be seen and heard and respected. The signs and t-shirts had George Floyd's face on them and Black Lives Matter and also Forever Dion. Dion Flood was a kid from Red Hook who died in 2013. He went through a subway turnstile without paying. 
Some cops tried to arrest him, and he jumped into the subway tracks to get away. He ended up in the hospital, paralyzed from the neck down, in a coma, and shackled to the bed. The police say he was hit by a train, but his family says he woke up from the coma and told them the police had beaten him and left him on the subway tracks. He died from the injuries not long after. When 4 p.m. comes, there are probably 100 to 200 people waiting for the protest to begin. Na is walking around with a bullhorn in hand. He's tall, wearing a white Black Lives Matter t-shirt. His mask is around his chin. Na, are you nervous? Um, I'm a little nervous. Are you used to talking to this many people? Um, I've, I've, I've been in front of this many people doing other things, just not talking. <laughs> But I'm not worried about the talking. I'm, my eyes my eyes on a mission, on a prize. I don't really, I'm not thinking too much about my speech or anything. You don't be nervous, man. You stand up and yeah, stand Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not that nervous. I'm just a little, I'm, I'm shocked, really. <laughs> more people than you thought there'd be here? A lot more people than I thought would be here. That's a lot. Huh? Yeah. I need everybody to repeat after me. One mic. One mic. One mic. One mic. All right, at 4.15, we will start moving. Right now, we are just waiting for other people to come. I'm so glad to see so many people out here. Let's give a round of applause, because this is beautiful. For a guy who's never led a protest before, he seems totally at ease. There are also police there, about 10 of them by my count, including the commanding officer of the 76th Precinct, which covers Red Hook, Deputy Inspector Megan O'Malley. She's talking to Nassim, Nas' advance man, telling him certain streets are closed, including the block the 76 precinct is on. Did she say that was because of construction, or did she say... She said it was because of she construction. construction, and they've been making um, mocktails. Oh, mo- oh, like Molotov cocktails? Yeah, mock-tails. Like the fire bombs? Yeah. Yeah. Nas planned the whole thing out. He asked the bikers in the crowd to move to the front of the march. Next come six people carrying a banner that reads, defund the police. And a more and more common tactic, the white marchers are put at the front of the protest and on the sides, the thought being that police will be less likely to harm them. Nas stands in front of the group with his fist in the air. The crowd gets silent, puts their fist in the air too. And then... Can I hear some noise, please? He leads a protest through Red Hook. The crowd is amped. There are a bunch of young people. This is the first time I've seen the whole crowd together. I ain't even gonna lie. I love it. Out in front of the marchers are eight or nine cops and more cops flanking the crowd. The protesters do the usual cheers. No justice, no peace. How do you spell a racist? As well as a few hyper-local chants. Y'all say 76, y'all say suck my dick. 76, suck my dick. 76, suck my dick. Is it a little weird that the cops are like... Leading, leading the way, yes, very weird, very, very. This is a guy named Rocky Harris. I wasn't expecting none of them. I thought they was going to be behind us. They actually leading the way. So, I don't know. The cops are there to keep the community and the marchers safe, Deputy Inspector O'Malley told me. But the marchers were there to protest the cops for making them feel unsafe. Na runs through the crowd, front to back, leading the chants with his bullhorn. 
The march winds through the public housing high-rises, picking up people as it goes. What started as a couple hundred people just keeps growing. I did not think there would be this many people at all. At all. This is crazy. This, I expected like 200. This is like 500. You're like commanding this crowd. Yeah, I got to make sure it stays in shape. <laughs> so far, so good. Yeah. The planned route, I find out, is to march over a little bridge, a highway overpass, and get as close as they can to the 76th precinct station, then turn and head back into Red Hook. But as the protest gets near, Nah changes the plan. He tells Nassim, who's been walking out in front of the marchers, communicating with the police, that he doesn't want to turn around and end the march. It's going too well. We have to. There's too many people to stop. We could go to the bridge and then we could walk downtown. Downtown is downtown Brooklyn, near the Barclays Center, which has been the location for a lot of protests these last few weeks. They get onto the overpass and cross it, and find a police barricade at the end, a line of those metal fences blocking off the intersection. They have to stop. Hundreds of people pile onto this bridge above the expressway. And this is where Nassim tells Deputy Inspector O'Malley that Na wants to change the plan. Okay, so I'm just... Where is he planning to go? That, I didn't ask. That's fine. Okay. You're, you know, there's yeah. going to be more cops, but okay. I'm just relaying information that I received. I understand that. You gave yeah. me a route, you wouldn't give me a route, you never gave me the end of the route. We agreed upon the footbridge, I'll facilitate it, but okay. So. Someone needs to tell O'Malley where they want to go. Nassim turns and looks for Na who's walked back into the crowd. I'm so speaking to make on his this behalf, clear, though, I we can't. can just speak to the organizer and whatever we can do to I'm make grabbing, this work. I'm grabbing him for All you. right, this isn't a standoff. No one's trying to trap anybody. No one's going to go in here. Nasheem! Nasheem is Nas' full name. It's a little confusing. It's very close to Nasim, his right-hand man. This guy. Nasheem, I need, I need you. You need to articulate all right, all right, what you right, like. Right. Stand back. Stand back. Give us some feet. Stand back. We're not there. We're not. We're okay. This has been great. We're okay. We're gonna keep being okay. I know you're under a lot of stress. Where do you want to go? You want to go downtown? You, wanna, you fit to go downtown? No. We can go downtown I, with no problem. I'm going by what you want. I'm here to facilitate for you. What do you want? We've had people downtown. No arrests. No we're issues. Going downtown. We're going downtown. Downtown is totally fine. Downtown. You want to go downtown? We can go downtown. And I just want to say while we're here, information that I got was from him and I delayed it to you when I got it. It's okay. Listen, uh, but I just want okay. you to know why no, no, he made it. It's tense. There have been plenty of protests in recent weeks where things did not go well. Right here in Brooklyn, cops beating protesters, driving cars into them, people throwing firebombs at police. This stuff's on everyone's mind. So there was okay. no. Listen, we're gravy. Everything's no, I, good. I Everything is good. I want transparency. But you're starting so to get a, you're you're a restless crowd. So Let's get them moving. All right. They have momentum. Let's take it in a positive right. direction. Can we go downtown? All right. Can you open you want to go downtown? Yeah. Yes. We'll go downtown. So we're all going to go downtown, right? Yes. We're going to stop traffic here. Okay. All right. We're going to open this up. We're going to go this way. Okay. All right. We're good. We're in agreement here. Yes. Yeah. So so once we're out of you're doing a good job. You're doing a really good job. All right. Okay. This is very successful. Let's keep it this way. What do you got? Once you um, hello Vinny, by the way. How are you? Um, once we're out of the seven six, it's out of your control. No, I'm gonna walk by the Barclays or the bridge or wherever you're going. Yeah. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah, yeah. No, we're pals today. All right. That's what I'm saying. No problem. We're gonna do this together. Yeah. Start it back up. No justice. Something. No justice! No justice! Ready? Slowly, slowly, please. Give an announcement. Slowly. 
call slowly. The officers swing one of the metal gates open, so only three or four people can walk through at a time. Na is back in the crowd with the bullhorn. Nassim and I walk through together at the head of the crowd. He turns and blows some kisses towards people on the precinct side of the barrier. Who are you blowing kisses to? Huh? Who are you blowing kisses I to? I used to work. I used to work here, so I'm saying hi to one of my coworkers. Where'd you work? Coworkers in the '76. You worked at the '76. Yep. When I ask about it, he doesn't I mean, have anything bad to say about the officers of the '76, and he tells me he's planning to have a career of some kind in law enforcement. It's a peaceful march to the Barclays Center, about three miles away from where it all began. The protest picks up more and more people along the way. The police estimated 1,200 people at its peak. A young woman in the crowd walks up to Na and gives him her number, which he takes, politely. And they continue even deeper into Brooklyn. At Grand Army Plaza, Na stands up on the wall of a fountain and looks back at a sea of faces waiting to hear him speak. This, this is, this is, this is amazing. I don't even know what to say at this point. Thank you. This is so many people. And to think it started all in Little Hobrell, this is crazy. This, this gives me hope, you know? Seeing all these people here, all these allies, all these young black men, all these young black women. Let's just, can we just put a fist up, please? We're we'll trying not to cry. I'm black and I'm proud. I met up with Na a few days later in a park in Red Hook. When he walked up to me, he was talking to his team, saying maybe next he would run for some kind of elected position. Nothing too big, just something local. Yesterday I was like in my house and I was just laying down on my bed and I'm like, wow, like, you know, I really fucking did that. Like, black, queer man, broken tooth, little chubby, like shit, I really did that. You know what I mean? Like, it just feels like the odds were stacked, are, are stacked against me and like, and I'm, I like winning. <laughs> I like winning. Danny Chavez is one of the producers of our show. Act four, do not pass go, do not collect $200. So there's this video making the rounds that a bunch of us saw, and we thought the writer who is in it, Kimberly Jones, did such a good job giving context and laying out a history quickly in a way that anybody can understand that even though this video has gotten a lot of views online and even after we learned that John Oliver ended his HBO show last week with this video, we still wanted to play it here. Kimberly Jones starts this video by talking about the looters in the recent protests. And she says people say all these negative things about the looters, but don't ask why they're looting. And to explain a feeling that lots of people have, she launches into an economic history of black people in America, starting with slavery. We must never forget that economics was the reason that black people were brought to this country. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Do you understand that? That's what we came to do. Now, if I right now decided that I wanted to play Monopoly with you, and for 400 rounds of playing Monopoly, I didn't allow you to have any money, 
I didn't allow you to have anything on the board. I didn't allow for you to have anything. And then we played another 50 rounds of Monopoly and everything that you gained and you earned while you were playing that round of Monopoly was taken from you. That was Tulsa, that was Rosewood. There are Those are places where we built black economic wealth, where we were self-sufficient, where we owned our stores, where we owned our property and they burned them to the ground. So that's 450 years. So for 400 rounds of Monopoly, you don't get to play at all. Not only do you not get to play, you have to play on the behalf of the person that you're playing against. You have to play and make money and earn wealth for them and then you have to turn it over to them. So then for 50 years, you finally get a little bit and you're allowed to play. And every time that they don't like the way that you're playing or that you're catching up or that you're doing something to be self-sufficient, they burn your game. They burn your cards. They burn your monopoly money. And then finally at the release and the onset of that, they allow you to play and they say, okay, now you catch up. How can you win? How can you win? You can't win. The game is fixed. So when they say, why do you burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. There is, Trevor Noah said it so beautifully last night. There's a social contract that we all have that if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken. And if the social contract is broken, why the fuck do I give a shit about burning the fucking football hall of fame, about burning a fucking target? You broke the contract when you killed us in the streets and didn't give a fuck. You broke the contract when for 400 years we played your game and built your wealth. You broke the contract when we built our wealth again on our own by our bootstraps in Tulsa and you dropped bombs on us. When we built it in Rosewood and you came in and you slaughtered us. You broke the contract, so fuck your target. Fuck your Hall of Fame. As far as I'm concerned, they could burn this bitch to the ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. Kimberly Jones, she's a writer, author of a young adult novel. Her website is kimjoneswrites.com. From the ages one to four, around the age of five, you shift away for your body to be stored. They promise education, but really they give you tests and scores. And they predict in prison population by who's going the lowest. The program was produced today by Nadia Raymond and Bim Adarunmi. The people who made today's show include Emmanuel Berry, Susan Burton, Zoe Chase, Dan Chivas, Sean Cole, Viva de Kornfeld, Nor Gill, Damian Grave, Winnie Masizzi, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Ben Phelan, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Sultala, Matt Tierney, Nancy Updike, and Julie Whitaker. Our managing editors are Diane Wu and Sarah Abdurrahman. Our executive editor is David Kestenbaum. Thanks today to Eric Stevens and the staff of Mr. Mango and Doreen St. Felix. The art on our website for today's show is by Adrian Brandon. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, he chose a funny way to announce to the staff some cutbacks in our equipment budget. I need everybody to repeat after me. One mic. One mic. One mic. One mic. One mic. 
I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. Who really wanna run with the Jew runners? Go hellfire hot in a new summer. It's cold winter, baby, in a cool summer. I suicide bomber in the blue hummer. Emerge at the side, out of blue zone. Bad news coming to Tucson, Tucson. Three beats like a wet dot chew on them. Got a short rope crew on them, move on them. Move on, move on. We be the heroes, the breakers, the chains, and the muscles of locks.